1: Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 288, Elizabeth I and the Historians. We left Elizabeth a couple of weeks ago, passing through Temple Bar with professions of love for her subjects. Time would tell. We discussed whether the Mulcaster version of events, the official one, was in fact a little free and easy with the verite, you might say. Now I decided not that it reflected reality, but look, I'm a trusting, innocent soul, and you may take a different view. But what Morkhaus's version certainly does is to play to an image of good Queen Bess that we like to believe in, and furthermore, which explains much of what we do know about her reign. Which brings us to myth, because the myth of Elizabeth is all around us, possibly more than any other English public figure. Maybe Churchill and Henry VIII can compete, and of course Dennis Amos, peerless opening bat for Warwickshire and England. It's a joke, by the way, I'm confident that I'm the only person to still carry a flame for old Dennis. Back on topic, Susan Doran and Thomas Freeman edited an interesting book on the myth of Elizabeth, the title of which is in the transcript on Tinternet for the keenies amongst you in the introduction, there's an interesting bit about defining historical myth. And they make the point that myth should not be confused with error. That myth may contain substantial amounts of truth and is believed because people wish to believe it and because it explained things satisfactorily. And so, a powerful and enduring view of Elizabeth, is of the solitary and all-knowing successful Virgin Queen, succeeding despite the patriarchy, glorious victor over the imperial and colonial might of Spain, defender of the English National Church. It's a lovely view, and it seems to explain a lot about the reign and what happened afterwards, so we go along with it. And there's a big part of me that says, well, all right then, go for it. A nation needs to have its great and inspiring stories, and there's plenty in it which is perfectly defensible. But sadly, however deeply affected history is by the cultural norms of the day, if this is going to at least try to be the history of England rather than our island's story, then over the next few weeks and months, we should decide whether the evidence really does support that comfortable and happy myth. Obviously, in a search for the truth, we should start with the lodestone that is 1066 and all that, which has a lot to say on Elizabeth. Although this memorable queen was a man, she was constantly addressed by her courtiers by various affectionate female nicknames, such as Aurelia Borealis Ruritana, Black Beauty or Bette and Brown Bess. She also very graciously walked on Sir Walter Raleigh's overcoat whenever he dropped it in the mud and was, in fact, in every respect a good and romantic queen. Seller and Yeatman then turned their attention to more important topics, such as the wave of beards and the great armadillo, which we'll come to, of course, in due course ladybird, the nineteen fifty eight version was thoroughly blown away by Elizabeth. She gets a whole book to herself, and it's all good traditional island story stuff. Drake is a brave national hero and defender of England against the Spaniard rather than essentially a licensed pirate. Raleigh is a far-sighted visionary, and so on. Elizabeth was an all-knowing leader, guiding the ship of state to a glorious destination. The British Empire was definitely a good thing, capital G, capital T. The summing up of Elizabeth goes like this. Her reign saw the beginning of what came to be the British Empire. The fighting sailors of her reign and the great victory over the Spanish Armada made England one of the greatest of the countries of Europe. Much of this was due to the character of Elizabeth herself. She never despaired and never gave in. How, then, was Elizabeth's reputation formed? Curiously, Elizabeth's reputation amongst her contemporaries was partly made precisely by those taking a pop at her. John Fox was cross with Elizabeth for her refusal to go far enough to rid the English church of what he saw as the remnants of popery. He rewrote his Book of Martyrs, to represent Elizabeth's triumph as divine providence. The idea was to shame Elizabeth into taking the good work, capital G, capital W, much further, because God had protected her and made her reign possible. And then there was Edmund Spencer and his fairy queen and other writings. Now look, I have never read Spencer, I admit it, and am heartily prejudiced against the lad, Due to the piteous cries of pain delivered up by some of my A level contemporaries forced into studying him. I have it on good authority, though, that Spencer wrote not just to destroy the lives of teenagers, but because he was livid, that the Queen again would not eradicate the final traces of Catholicism, specifically, in this case, by executing Mary Queen of Scots, the source in his mind of all plots. Now, look. Obviously, criticising a monarch openly was a life-shortening experience in the days of yore, even for one who professed to love you so much. So again, criticism was hidden as praise for mercy. Nice approach, although it would have been considerably too subtle for me to get hold of. But Elizabeth evidently knew full well that both Fox and Spencer had an agenda, and yet she rewarded them both instead. Okay because she was clever enough to know that by appropriating the praise and ignoring the implied criticism, so her reputation would be enhanced. And if you want any evidence of Elizabeth's subtlety, then it seems to me this is all you need. My response to criticism is to fly into a rage or weep into a beer, but then I suppose I'm not the Queen of England. Okay then, on to the death of the Queen. And as you would expect, there were a series of glowing tributes, which is of course de rigueur on the death of a monarch, and there was a very grand funeral. But in the immediate aftermath, there are no great histories, although some say we do get Francis Bacon's very famous phrase, that she would not make windows into men's hearts. Other attribute that phrase actually to Lord Walsingham, but nobody thinks Elizabeth herself actually said the words in that order. However, in the early 17th century, the path is firmly set for Elizabeth's characterisation. Between 1615 and 1629, William Camden published his Annales, and they would be deeply influential in the way that Elizabeth would be seen by subsequent generations. Firstly, it's worth bearing in mind who commissioned Camden to write. It was Cecil, Lord Burley. So spookily, Camden's history vilified Leicester and criticised him as a wildly zealous Protestant adventurer. Burley and Leicester were not pals. However, more importantly for us, Camden's work produced a picture of Elizabeth, the politic, pragmatic ruler, reluctant to fight hating religious extremism of all kind, while at the same time, As the militant champion of Protestantism, a warrior queen who defeated the armies of the Antichrist. To achieve this sleight of hand, we get a queen who is prudent, wise, peaceful, but who is also devious, cold, and rather unsympathetic. A quarter of a century later, one John Hayward refined the message in creating advice for James's heir, Prince Henry. For Hayward, Elizabeth avoided war in a foreign land as far as possible, and when she did intervene, she did so for reasons of state rather than for her co-religionists. To some degree, by now, Elizabeth was the flail with which unsatisfactory 17th century Stuart kings were beaten. It is in Stuart times that her reputation was probably at its highest. This feels like potentially bad parental techniques, with which I have been the object of comparing one's offspring to the family of shining perfection just down the road. An approach to be deplored and rejected for children, but monarchs are, well, fair game, I'd say. Certainly, Charles I got it in the neck. Arf, and if you will, arf. And so by now we are moving smoothly into the image of whiggish perfection. David Hume's history in 1759 described an Elizabeth of vigour, constancy, magnanimity, penetration, vigilance, prudence. Eager to outdo each other, the most Whiggish of the Whig historians, such as the ubiquitous and omnipresent Thomas Babington Macaulay, fell over themselves to praise Caesar, given that she was already helpfully buried Elizabeth was the monarch who identified herself with the nation and its destiny. She was a queen who wielded absolute power, but in reality her power was only absolute because it was based on the love and confidence of her subjects. I may cry. Okay, so far so good. Elizabeth's bones are encased in a warm, fuzzy feeling. But hang on just a moment. Hang on. Right from the start, there was a negative narrative too, which came from, yes, you guessed it, Catholic sources. With a delightful lack of irony, authors such as John Leslie, Adam Blackwood and Robert Person popped Bloody Mary into the cabinet of forgetfulness and painted Elizabeth as the great persecutor, that inhuman murderess of God's saints. Not just that, but they picked up on her relationship with Robert Dudley and painted a picture of sexual immorality. Both these narratives have failed to take hold. More recently, there's a reasonably frequent and tiresome attempt to create some equivalency between the Elizabethan persecutions, which were severe enough, it must be said, and the excesses of Mary. But still, the dominant received history, at least, is of a relatively restrained religious policy under Elizabeth. The Catholic tradition was much more subtly done in the early 19th century by the Catholic historian John Lingard, who, according to historian Patrick Collinson in the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography, buried a Catholic historiographical tradition under rigorous historical research and exemplary use of manuscript materials. Whatever the subtext, Lingard again described a far-sighted governor of great wisdom, though he raised an interesting question. Was it really all Elizabeth's wisdom? Huh, interesting. As it happens, the first person to really break ranks in the 19th century was James Froude, whose name always gets mentioned when we talk historiography. I think it's fair to say that Froude had something of a downer on the Virgin Queen. He wrote a history of twelve, volumes on the period between 1530 and 1588. Twelve volumes on 50 years. Try getting that in a window promotion in Waterstones these days. Good golly, Miss Molly, that's a serious history. There is nothing remotely Catholic about Jimmy Frude. I don't know enough about him, but he appears to be the sort of man who courted controversy, and in himself, sounds a rather fascinating subject. Anyway, while working hard to refute the Oxford movement's attempts to reinterpret Anglicanism in the Catholic tradition, for which we must applaud him, Froude found himself heartily disliking Elizabeth. He found her talentless, torturous, indecisive. As far as he was concerned, the achievements of the reign came down to her privy councillors, not to her. The history of Tudor England was still one of greatness but it was achieved despite Elizabeth. So at least we have a bit more controversy, and this idea of, well, was it really Elizabeth or her counsellors, is now something of a theme. However, the main narrative of the likes of the lovely Mandel Creighton, A.J. Pollard, E.J. Neal and A.L. Rouse, right up to the 1950s, was broadly laudatory. And the thing everyone got really excited about was that here was a ruler who really knew and connected with her people as far as that story went. So, you know, we are now back to the ye may well have a greater prince, but ye shall never have a more loving prince stuff. Of course, since the 1960s, the professional historian has been made of saltier stuff. Of every valley shall be exalted, and the high places made plain mould. Perspectives have changed. Christopher Haig took the, let's judge her performance by her worst essay approach to assessment and focused on the 1590s. The 1590s, ladies and gentlemen, were not a happy series of years in the lives of ordinary English men and women. Also, Elizabeth was in her 60s and wasn't wearing well. Haig argued that she was increasingly indecisive, ruled with a narrow privy council and was unloved by her people, which is rude, but does accord in some ways with the analysis of Patrick Collinson. Collinson wrote an influential article called The Monarchical Republic, which took a traditional rubric a little further. You are all of you well-versed now in the importance of the English parish as the centre of English life. So important was the parish that the English system of government has been described as self-government at the king's command, which in his essay, Collinson describes as a tired old expression. Well, for folks like me, it is yet a sparkly, shiny and exciting concept, and I suspect always will be. But hey, the sky is blue in this shed of mine. Anyway, the phrase reflects the strength of local power in everyday life, and indeed its money-raising powers, and also the imperfect nature of central control. I am warbling a bit. Collinson, however, developed a view for central government of England, which was also semi-independent of the Queen. Essentially, England, he wrote, was essentially ruled by the Privy Council, which governed and chafed the Queen when she didn't do as they desired. So remember those two concepts, if you will, because they will reappear. Self-government at the King's command as a model of the English governance, which has a lot of merit. And the idea that the Privy Council really, for all intents and purposes, ruled England and should appear in the Ladybird book rather than Elizabeth. Connected with this idea was Elizabeth's legendary indecisiveness. Geoffrey Elton described her as persistently dilatory. She changed her mind as often as chance offered, exasperated everybody by her refusal to come to decisions and charmed them all back again by some transparent piece of graciousness. Christopher Hague made a similar point that Elizabeth did not attempt to solve problems, she simply avoided them, then survived long enough for some of them to go away. And John Guy made the same point. Elizabeth's weakness was that she vacillated when faced by important decisions. Wallace McCaffrey went even further, made the furthest, and represented Elizabeth as a confused and ineffective ruler who simply had a run of fantastic luck. Still more recently, however, historians such as David Lodes have taken the view that this apparent indecision was precisely what Elizabeth wanted. Not making a choice was precisely what gave her power. She was at her least comfortable and least effective and least in control when her Privy Council was united and pushing one line. She was most powerful when she had the ability to choose. Jennifer Eales dug out a killer quote from a letter from Elizabeth to the Duke of Anjou, which suggests that rather than an inability to decide, Elizabeth was one of those exceptional talents who had the ability to do that very hardest thing of all, which is to do nothing. I have used a time which ordinarily accomplishes more than reason does. And having made use of both, I have not refrained from roundly declaring to you what I know and what you will find true always. I see well that many people go away repenting of having made rash judgments at the first stroke without having weighed in a better balance the depth of their opinions. Even John Guy, who is not an Elizabeth fan, it has to be said, as the recent film of Mary, Queen of Scots, to which he was adviser, rather demonstrate. Even he admits that Elizabeth was a clever and talented politician when he wrote that, perhaps better than any other European ruler, Elizabeth mastered the political game. Susan Brigden's view was that the duty of her counsellors was to offer advice. The Queen did not necessarily see it as her duty to follow it. And she concluded that, unlike her father, Elizabeth was not easily led. David Starkey emphasised that however much agency you give to Elizabeth or the Privy Council, she was herself determined to be her own person. And we should realise that because she told us so. I will not be like my sister Mary and I will not rule like her either. Finally, another recent theme has been to dig much more into the problems created for Elizabeth from her gender, given the patriarchal nature of early modern England. And wherever you land on the continuum which has at one end Elizabeth was just a figurehead, to the Elizabeth listened to Hawkwind and was master of the universe, at the other, there's no doubt that there were some things, like leading an army for example, which was taboo for women, that even she was unable to break. And to some degree, at least, that meant some compromise on her power. Hey, I'm Ryan
0: Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Maron from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultrasoft Tissues wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow,
1: and monetize their podcasts everywhere. acast.com. Let me summarize then. The traditional view was a very positive one based on a super positive image of Elizabeth started by Camden in the early 17th century and used as a whip to discipline Stuart Kings. She was master in her own house, controlled parliament, restrained religious conflict, but she did not resolve those issues, which were only fully resolved by the civil wars of the 17th century. They were capable of making slightly daft statements like England ended her reign as a major European power who could never be ignored, that sort of thing. Just as a plot spoiler, That's not really true. England is still very much in small, damp island off the coast of the place where really powerful people live, territory in 1603. Revisionists de-emphasised the amount of religious conflict and emphasised just how worried England was about the Catholic threat from the continent rather than being this self-confident thrusting power on the inevitable and whiggish path towards greatness post-revisionists have looked at the rule of Elizabeth from a feminist perspective and the context of a patriarchal society. Elizabeth is seen as a weaker monarch, but not for her personal characteristics particularly, but because there were so many constraints on her power that she often had limited room for manoeuvre. Now then, I think I have said enough for one week on the historiography, although next time I will also unpick some of the detailed themes of her reign, but we'll get on with the business of politics too. Before we go though, let me ask you to remember a couple of things. The first is that in all this talk about reputation building and how much practical power Elizabeth wielded, which will unfold over the next few months of the podcast, or, although I don't want to weary you, possibly years of the podcast, is that Elizabeth was surely the best educated and intelligent of Henry's children, thoroughly educated in multiple languages, a talented speaker, and, as we have seen, aware of and able to communicate her charisma. She was no cipher under any circumstances. I say this because of point two, which is to remember that she is 25 at this point. And it's almost impossible, it seems to me, to put aside the images of Gloriana later in her reign, when she was older and tired and presenting an image. Now, at some point, the white paint will be applied to her f- face and body, but it was probably not yet. It could be in the few years after 1562 when Elizabeth has a serious bout of smallpox. There are so many images of Elizabeth I that I was interested to learn that we can't be confident of with almost any of them presenting a real likeness. Roy Strong studied them and complained that the structure of her face differs all over the place. The exception is the picture of teenage Elizabeth at Windsor Castle. Now, she's 13 in that picture, so much younger than she is here. But, you know... Show me the child at seven and all that, and already in that picture is a firmness of purpose, suspicion, the intelligence. I have put that image on the website, and for the first few podcasts, at least, it is the image I recommend you keep in mind. Only, only. Next episode is in a couple of weeks' time when we start to get back to the politics and some of the major political themes of her reign. In the meantime, good luck, everyone and have a great couple of weeks.